uh, in our series on knowing truth. We have this week and next week and, um, before we're done. Today's sermon is about the rule of faith and how it helps us know truth and keeps us on track in a sea of alternative truths. So rather than read from the scripture this morning, Annette is going to read from the church's most ancient summary of the scripture, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This is the testimony of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the creed, and we're thankful for the truth that it captures and the reality that this truth has been proclaimed by men and women uh, for 2,000 years around the world, this same precious truth. Uh, we're thankful for the mystery that it reveals of who you are, of what you've done, um, of who we are in you, and uh, the hope that we have in Jesus. And so as we enter the Advent season, uh, we don't uh, enter it like the nation of Israel in the darkness. We have received a full vision of your glory in the person of Jesus. And so we enter it with eyes wide open to what's coming. And so would you grant us great hope, uh, great peace this morning? Uh, would you help us uh, carry it with us throughout our week, uh, carry it with us into this world and invite others into the same like sure anchor that we have uh, in you? We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Uh, so as we're winding down our series on what is truth, what we've said thus far is that, is that God is truth and he's the source of all truth. And that means that truth is personal, uh, truth is glorious, all truth is God-thought and God-given. And we, as image bearers, are to welcome truth with thankfulness as God's gift to us, and then steward that truth in love for God and others. And this is our duty, whether we're talking about the truth of Jesus or the truth of trigonometry. All truth is meant to lead us into the love of God and love of others. Because of sin, though, we rejected God and we rejected truth with him. Humanity did. Not all truths, though, uh, but those truths which remind us of God. It turns out, though, that the most basic truths, uh, those that give life meaning and joy, goodness and beauty, are those things which speak the most loudly about God. And so we struggle with them, uh, like the truth of our bodies. Uh, created as we are in the image of God, the truth of our limits and dependence, the truth of the dignity of all people, of right and wrong, love and justice. These are all things that reflect God strongly, and so we uh, have difficulty with them. 
Obadiah 3 says the pride of our hearts has deceived us. Now, how does self-deception work? Uh, the social psychologist Dan Ariely, uh, he's at Duke, uh, he has devoted much of his career to the study of dishonesty. You might know him from like TED Talks and books. He's like um, in various places. Uh, prior to him uh, and to his research, it was assumed in behavioral economics they took a very... Uh, uh, very low view of humans and, and that we were primarily motivated by our own self-interest. And that means that we will cheat as much as we can get away with. Um, but Ariali believed that any potential cheater has to balance two conflicting desires. The urge to max out his gains, uh, to live for his self-interest, and the need to see himself as a good person. And so we cheat, but only so much. Uh, in experiments, Ariely found that most people cheat when given the opportunity, but only just a little. And he calls this the fudge factor. Um, it uh, is a good description of our relationship with the truth. Uh, sinners are committed, according to Scripture, to suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, both the truth of God and his reign over us and the truth that we are sinners. And so we are rarely open, openly rebellious. In a sad irony, uh, this fall, um, I think it, the news came out in September, Ariely himself has been accused of fabricating data in many of his own experiments, lying in experiments about lying, which is wild. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if it's true, it seems, it seems true. Uh, Ariely's hunch, though, is interesting, that we want to cheat, uh, to skirt the truth, while still feeling like we are good people. Uh, cheating on our taxes, but just a little, right? And justified for it. Cheating on our spouses, but only a bit, and only in certain ways. Um, it's this terrible dance that we do with truth and falsehood. Cheating as much as we can while still claiming to be good. The gospel of grace liberates us from this need to dance. Uh, this dance of death. It enables us to tell the truth about ourselves and live. Uh, it turns on the light and opens the window. It exposes us, but with life. Uh, John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, came into the world in Christ. Uh, believing partial truth is like living under a strobe light, right? Everyone looks good under a strobe light, but it's not an honest look, is it? And it's hard to live permanently under a strobe light. Jesus comes and turns the light on forever. In the light of Christ, everything looks different. Uh, in the Gospels, though, we see how many people hated the glare of that light. They didn't understand it. Uh, John 3, 19 says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so Christ came in the flesh to reintroduce us to the light of God, to the truth of God, but not just truth, but truth and grace. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the surprise of Christmas. Not only that God became man, but that he came gently. 
He came in love and not in wrath. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the mystery of God, that God would come not to condemn, even though we are worthy of condemnation, but he came to save. Uh, Paul calls this in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. Um, Christ was killed because people didn't understand this. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Most truths on offer today are, at best, truths without grace, and that is not the whole truth. The world's wisdom almost always says something that's true. It's never completely devoid of truth. They leave out God, though, and to leave out God is ultimately to leave out love and the hope of love because God is love. It's a partial truth, like a strobe light, and partial truths kill. But partial truths are tempting to us. They feel forgiving. It feels easier to leave God out of the conversation. People today often think that leaving out God protects us from shame and guilt and fear. But now, if you you read the New York Times editorial page, tell me leaving out God protects us from shame, guilt, and fear. It is full of shame, guilt, and fear. That is the driving motivation of so many of our arguments It's shame, guilt, fear. The less Christian our culture becomes, the less gracious it is. God help us if we say or do anything wrong. God help you because no one else will. Without Christ, without atonement, we don't have the means to forgive, and you can really see that in culture. We live in a prophetic age which loves to speak truth to power. And in a prophetic age, you can be confident that most people claiming to be prophets are false prophets. And that's, not, that's something that we see in Scripture. It's a pattern that you see. Uh, in the Old Testament, the prophets we read, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all these prophets, they were never the only ones speaking at the time. There are always other people that they are speaking against, other prophets, more popular, more reputable. They're usually associated with the wealthy and the elite. And these False prophets convince Israel to disbelieve the true prophets, to kill them. In the New Testament, the same pattern continues. The Apostle Paul contends with super-apostles. There were Judaizers and Gnostics twisting the gospel to their own aims and benefits for their own glory, removing grace. Uh, Jesus himself warned when he was preparing his disciples for life in Matthew 24. He says, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And so as we think about discerning truth, knowing truth, living truthfully, we have to beware of false prophets. We have to listen to the warning of Christ. In a prophetic age, in any age of turmoil, there are always more false prophets than true prophets. How can we hold fast to the only truth that saves, that includes with it grace? Who are the graceless prophets we find ourselves most susceptible to? Are we taking Jesus' warning seriously? Many, he says, many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. 
Beware the voices around us today that come in Jesus' name, that come as Christians, but point to themselves instead of Jesus. Beware those who say, I am the Christ. I am the solution. I am the fix, the Savior, the anointed one. I'm the new thing you need, the new thing that we need, the new thing that America needs, the world needs. At the end of his life, Paul continues this warning. He reaffirms it in 2 Timothy 4, his last letter, his closing words to uh, Timothy. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. According to Paul, sound teaching must be endured. It requires patience and steadfastness, a long obedience in the same direction. It's a Eugene Peterson phrase. Uh, Sound teaching rarely takes the form of a hot take. Uh, It can't be captured on TikTok or in a headline, right? So many people are worried about social media, and it it is very worrying, Uh, but it's not new. Like, fake news has been going viral for a long time, right? Uh, It's been going viral in the same ways that it went viral in Paul's day. Right? By appealing to our flesh, by appealing to passion. And so, what myths are we tempted to wander off into? Truth that just sounds right. It confirms vices instead of challenging them. Do we find ourselves accumulating teachers which appeal to our gut that require little of us? Teaching that doesn't need to be endured. It encourages impatience. If we learn anything from the early church, we learn that the gospel of grace is easy to lose. But how do we know who to trust? Uh, False teachers aren't ever obviously false, or rarely are they obviously false. How do we know that I'm not being a false teacher right now, right? I am a sinner. Um, I am limited. And so how do we test the truths that are being claimed before us? Well, we're in luck because it's not a new problem. That means that the Bible speaks quite particularly to, the, to discerning truth. It helps us. Since this was also a problem during the time when Scripture was written, we can look to Scripture for advice. First uh, John, in particular, uh, speaks a great deal about false prophets. First uh, John, the Apostle John, was writing to a church that was uh, discouraged, uh, and that was nervous, because apparently a few key leaders had left. And they took with them a lot of members, and they left to start a new religious movement, uh, teaching new things that were contrary to the message that they had received from the apostles. And the church was shaken because some of their most talented leaders had left. Uh, Some of the most capable speakers had gone away, and uh, they were left uh, weak and frail and doubtful. And so the apostle writes to them, imploring these Christians to stay the course. In 1 John 2, first, he reminds them that this shouldn't be a surprise. Remember what Jesus said. Remember his warning to us. 1 John 2, verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Um, it's hard not to read this. I don't know, you know, as uh, 
pastor and you can get sort of lost in the like uh, Christian evangelical world um, that, that's so very far from life in San Francisco. But it's hard not to read this and think about the ex-evangelical movement, which is so prominent right now. Um, and it's not really just the leaving, um, but it's how so many people are capitalizing on their leaving, right? Right, with podcasts and articles and books devoted to explaining why I left the church. Um, culturally, it reminds me, um, I'm getting old to where I can like, remind me <laughs> of something before. It feels a lot like the new atheism movement in the early 2000s, uh, which, is, which is almost no more. And, and so my hope and, and guess is that this will flame out just as quickly. Um, but you have people who are leaving the church and trying to take people with them. Um, and that said, I am always grateful when someone is able to tell the truth about themselves and their faith and doubt. Um, if someone isn't convinced of Christianity, then uh, he should say so. She, says she should say so. Um, as a pastor, I've invited people to, to say that and, and to say it without shame, but to speak truthfully when faith isn't there, not as a point of discipline, but as a rest from pretending. Uh, we should not be encouraging pretending and faking it here. And so leaving is clarifying. I mean, it's not only clarifying for those who leave, but it's also clarifying for those who stay. And that seems to be John's take here. Uh, he's not anxious like the church is anxious. And he's encouraging them to be at ease. Um, one could even apply First John 2 more broadly to uh, our anxiety around Western and American culture at large. Um, America and the West has called itself Christian for a long time. And indeed, it, it began, a lot of it began with Christian roots, but it mostly left behind Christ uh, for greed and power a long time ago. And finally, you know, a, a century later, it's deciding to leave the church behind. And that, and that actually is, is maybe helpful and clarifying, right? Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Don't be anxious. This is the truth. Uh, the America on the news is America's honest self. It's who we are. <laughs> uh, uh, Jonathan Lehman writes, politics is always contained inside religion. A nation's gods determine its politics. Uh, first religion, then politics. The political always involves spiritual realities, and people's spiritual state plays out in political terms, whether they live in harmony with the divine king's righteousness or in rebellion against him. That said, it's still disorienting to live in an age of disruption uh, when uh, evangelicalism is fracturing, when the Christian church is realigning so radically um, and so quickly. And so how do we survive? How do we know where to go? Uh, John writes, and he aims to reorient us, uh, to make sure that we are setting our anchor in the right place. And this is key. John reorients us not by giving us anything new. He doesn't share anything new with the church. He doesn't say, oh, I, f I forgot to tell you this thing. What John does is he reminds them what is already theirs in Christ, what they already know. Chapter 2, verse 20, to an anxious church, to a church that is 
doubting themselves as they see all their best people leave. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Don't let them say anything different. You are anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. If you are in Christ this morning, let that assurance wash over your doubt. You have been anointed. You all have knowledge. When we're at a loss, we remember the promise of the Holy Spirit. The false teachers all claim to have new knowledge, knowledge which supposedly superseded the knowledge of Christ. But faithfulness doesn't require specialized knowledge. The gospel is a mystery for sure, but it is a mystery which in Christ has now been shouted for all to hear. It's open, um, open source, right? It's, it's everyone has access to it. The poorest, least educated Christian in the world has in him, in her, already the same wealth of trust as the very educated. You don't need to read the right things. You don't need to proclaim the right things. Do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in God the Son? Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? Do you believe God is holy, that we are sinners, and Christ is our Savior? Hebrews eleven six. do you believe that faith is believing that God exists and that he is good to those who diligently seek him? Before Jesus died, he promised to send to his disciples a helper, to all his followers, every one of them, men and women, young and old, And what would that helper do? John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And what is the content of that truth? The content is Jesus. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. He will teach you all things, 14, 26, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, 1614, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the anointing that John speaks of. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. John encourages these Christians, most of them poor and uneducated, by reminding them of what they already have the riches that they already have in the gospel of grace. Lots of people today claim we need specialized knowledge. I am particularly tempted to that, my personality, to think that I need more knowledge, to be more widely read, to have more sources. But the reality is that I have sufficient knowledge already to, to live and love and flourish. I don't have omniscience. We are not gods, but God is with us, and he has given us real knowledge so that in some things we do not need to be taught. We don't need more context or perspective. We don't need to wait in some things to make a judgment on what is right and what is wrong. We may need wisdom to apply what we know, but what we know is not in question, that Jesus is the king of the universe. And we need to hold fast to what was taught in the beginning and speak it courageously. 
we should beware innovative teaching when it comes to the things of God. Uh, Martin Luther said provocatively, as he always is, uh, he says, if anyone brings up a new teaching against the old teaching, even if it could raise the dead, it must not be believed. And that's surprising, considering Luther seems like an innovator, right? He's the man who began the Protestant Reformation, but he didn't consider himself an innovator. Rather, he was overturning innovation. He was challenging abuses in the church, returning the church to the faith once delivered. And so prophecy isn't saying something new, but proclaiming God's word, and God's word never changes. Christian teaching should be mostly Christian reminding. Uh, Not me saying something new, not me being clever, as tempting as that is, but saying again and afresh what has always been said. Uh, Maybe it's new to me and new to you, and that's okay, but it should never be new to the church. I'm reminded um, now at the very end of the Bible, the end of the book of Revelation, um, there are curses upon anyone who would add words to this book or take words away. Uh, This is why we read in place of the scripture this morning, the Apostles' Creed. Um, Annette, uh, who's a very sharp lady, um, I'd sent her uh, this earlier in the week. She texted me yesterday, though, and asked, after I finish reading, should I still say this is God's word or something else? Which is a great question, right? Yeah. Um, Because technically this is not God's word. Um, So I altered the conclusion only a little bit, you maybe noticed, and said, Uh, this is the testimony of God's word. We normally say this is God's word, but but she said this is the testimony of God's word. Um, But the thing is, that still means it is 100% binding on us as Christians. Uh, To deny the creed is to risk denying Christ. Um, It's called the Apostles' Creed uh, because it is believed to be a time-tested summary of the Apostles' teaching. And the cool thing about the Apostles' Creed versus the Nicene or Athanasian Creed, um, is that the Apostles' Creed was not adopted by a council. Um, it wasn't created after you know, months of arguing among theologians. Um, those creeds are binding on us too, um, but the Apostles' Creed uniquely arose organically uh, from every corner of the early church. And so the version we have today Uh, was formally adopted in the 5th century, but we have numerous sources of very, very similar um, uh, texts that are very much like the Apostles' Creed with those three distinctive parts and the components of the parts. And they all confess faith in God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our redemption, and God the Spirit and our sanctification. Uh, In the early 3rd century, the 200s, something uh, like the Apostles' Creed was already used widely in in baptism, and people were usually baptized three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, And they would, between each one, confess, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Son, um, born of the Virgin Mary, um, and so on. New Christians would be baptized for each stanza. Uh, In the second century, around 180, um, so very soon after uh, the apostles died, Irenaeus gave a modified version, and he claimed it was taught everywhere. So he says uh, in Against Heresies, he says, The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith, 
She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, and he goes on. And it sounds so very familiar to the Apostles' Creed, and you can find similar things across many authors throughout um, the early church. Uh, Irenaeus goes on, he says, The church, having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house, carefully preserves it. For although the languages of the world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition is one and the same. Irenaeus refers to this three-part confession as part of the rule of faith, and then that language is used throughout church history. And uh, by this, he doesn't mean rule like a law, but rule like a ruler. Um, That's what a canon is. It's a a standard by which we examine um, our faith. It refers to Paul's word in Romans 12, which calls us to receive prophecies, but only in proportion to our faith. Uh, literally in Greek, according to the analogy of faith, or in Latin, the reason of faith. And so in a prophetic age, we should only receive prophecies in line with the logic of the Christian faith, as expressed in the creed, uh, one that matches the rule, the measure we already have in the apostolic teaching. Uh, This is why the Apostle John tells the church to reject the false teachers. He calls them to examine what is being said, and he says, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. We think of Antichrist as like this, you know, we've read too many like Tim LaHaye books or whatever if you, if you grew up in the 90s. Um, but um, uh, as this looming figure, and, and maybe it will be, but, but Antichrist is simply someone who denies Christ, denies that Jesus is the Christ. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Reject all antichrists. Christ deniers. Hold fast to what you already know, John says. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Everything Christians believe must fit this standard, match this measure, hold fast to Christ in the faith once delivered to all the saints. Anything contrary should be rejected because it is only by faith in Christ that we have eternal life. His truth is the only truth that comes with grace. In addition to the Apostles' Creed, the rule of faith usually includes the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and sometimes the sacraments. And so every catechism throughout church history, if you pick any of them, they all sort of follow that general pattern. Um, All the questions, including the New City Catechism, if you like think about the whole year, it covers the same ground, the three articles of the creed, who is God the Father, who is God the Son, who is God the Holy Spirit. Um, It covers the Ten Commandments. You know, we spend a number of weeks taking the commandments in turn. It covers the Lord's Prayer and the sacraments. And together, these beliefs contain the entirety of the Bible's teaching in miniature. Uh, Martin Luther said, whatever all of scripture holds, it is simply expressed in these three. Everything needed is found in seed form right here. To the Christian, it is God's word for faith, hope, and love. And so traditionally, the Ten Commandments is connected with love. It teaches love, how to love. The Apostles' Creed teaches faith, what God has done, who he is. And then the Lord's Prayer teaches hope. And so we have faith, hope, and love in 
these three. Together, the catechism teaches how we should act, what God gives us, and how to pray. Todd Haynes writes, the catechism lays bare the Bible's inner logic. It is the Bible's interpretive key for humans. It reveals their sin, inadequacy, and need. It reveals who God is and what he does. It reveals God's forgiveness and life for humans. It offers a unified account of reality in relation to God, ourselves, and one another. It tells us who we are by telling us who God is. Um, And it's not that it becomes the only thing you know, but it's only through these revealed truths, revealed in Scripture, that we can know anything. Uh, Todd Hearns writes, The Catechism is like the ABCs of the Bible. It's brief and accessible for young or old, learned or unlearned, and it can't be replaced. You can never move on from the ABCs without losing the ability to read and write. And in the same way, you can never move on from the catechism without losing the ability to read and hear God's word. If you want to read and write, learn the ABCs. If you want to hear God's word, learn the catechism. Um, It's easy again, for me, I, I like new things, um, I like new knowledge, um, and it's easy for me to think, like, won't this get boring, um, or won't I come uh, to face circumstances that this doesn't help me with, um, but the creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments are remarkably deep. I, I challenge you to test it. Uh, early in the pandemic, when we were all still stuck in our house, um, Uh, Dash and I facilitated a 10-week Zoom course on the Ten Commandments. Um, And the amazing thing is we didn't have to teach anything. Um, I remember I came prepared with questions and comments to facilitate a discussion. It was when Zoom was still very awkward for all of us, and so I thought, oh, this is going to be hard. Um, But then after the first week, I didn't come with anything because I didn't have to say anything. I, I, I didn't have to lead. The conversation just took care of itself, where we just read the commandments read the one commandment and other verses and, and, and catechisms that had expanded on it. And then we would talk for an hour plus each week, um, Christians and non-Christians in the Zoom room, right? What the commandment was about, what it preserved, what it highlighted, the freedom it offers, how right each commandment felt to us. We asked each other, man, what would our life be like if we obeyed this perfectly? What would our church be like if we perfectly obeyed? Thou shalt not murder. And all that Jesus expands on it. If the world obeyed it perfectly, how beautiful would the world be if the Ten Commandments were honored? And yet in the end, we knew we couldn't obey it alone, and we were moved towards Christ. We could do the same with literally every word of the Lord's Prayer and every word of the creed. Meditate and know it deeply and let it change us. We would never move past it. It is the ABCs of the faith. We desperately need to recover a rule of faith in the modern church, in a world whose creed is usually just, I believe in myself, in a world that's often confused rife with conflicting stories, often within the same culture, within the same person even. John wants us to remember what we already know, what we have received, not something we discover on our own, but something that God has given us. 
Uh, the creeds are often cited against heresy. Uh, that's what we see as their function, and that is something that we need in earnest today uh, to say no to false teaching. Um, a country which ceases to defend its borders or enforce its laws is sort of giving up on being a country, and the same is true for our faith community. But we can't just say no. We need to offer something positive, and, and the creed offers a positive statement. Uh, Philip Carey, a historian, he explains, the Nicene Creed was written to say no in the strongest possible terms, but the creed said no by saying yes to who God really is and who Jesus is and what he has done to make us who we are. And so are we able in the practice of saying no by saying yes? What do we as Christians say yes to? In a world as confused as ours, we need to confess week in and week out our affirmative faith in God. We need to say yes weekly to the God who speaks the world into existence by the word of his power, God the Father, to the God who is the word made flesh, who suffered, died, and was raised three days later and now sits at God's right hand, God the Son, and to the God who gives gifts to his people in word and sacrament, God the Spirit. If we want to know the truth, to discern truth from error, then we, get, we need to get in the practice of saying the creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Joshua Pauling writes, each time we recite and reflect on the creed, we are brought further into its story, and its story is brought further into us. We're doing more than stating bare facts or reinforcing social bonds. We're responding to what God has said and done by saying, this faith is mine, this is my story. But not just mine, it's the same faith confessed by Irenaeus and Athanasius, by Anselm and Aquinas, by Luther and Calvin, by peasants and kings, by mothers and fathers, by sisters and brothers, by friends and enemies, by rich and poor. When you recite the creed, you join millions of living Christians in thousands of languages in hundreds of countries with untold numbers of faithful saints who have gone before, echoing together the true story and meaning of the cosmos. To help us in this uh, next year, we're planning to replace the New City Catechism with the Creed. Uh, the Catechism, New City Catechism has been a great companion to us for five years now. I think we've gone um, through it for five years, but it's really hard to memorize something that you only hear a year at a time, right? Um, I'm hopeful that by reciting the Creed regularly, it becomes second nature to us and also meaningful that we are saying the same thing that is being said around the world. And so that is why we'll recite the creed regularly. It's why we go through the liturgy every week. It's why we take communion every week uh, to affirm faith. It's why we follow the church calendar and encourage, us, encourage taking Advent, Christmas, Lent, Holy Week seriously so that it shapes us to remember, to not teach new things, even if it might be new to you, but to remember the old things, to reaffirm what we already know. It's why we walk through the story of God every January, and so that will be a fun thing for those of you who are new. In January, we'll take six weeks and just tell the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Um, it's, a, it's a great time, and it's good to remember the story of what we believe and what Christians everywhere believe. Um, Again, we don't want to say anything new, but to affirm week in and week out what is ours already in Christ. 
the thing that is so beautiful about the gospel and all this is that it's ours all by faith. Uh, Notice how the creed is not I understand. That is not what we are affirming. It is I believe. Christianity doesn't require that you understand before you believe. Uh, The creed is full of mysterious things. It speaks of things that can't be immediately observed or verified or proven. That's why it had to be revealed. It had to be told to us. The creed's truth can't be proven, but its truth can be trusted because its truth is a person. We believe the creed because we trust Jesus. God's trustworthiness is verified by experience. But we don't start with verification. Faith starts with trust, and that leads to experience and leads to knowledge. Augustine said, if you can't understand, believe, and then you'll understand. It's why the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not see and taste, but taste and see, take and eat. I believe that's it. Do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in God the Son? Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? Do you trust the Ten Commandments? Do you trust the Lord's Prayer? Then come be baptized. Come to the table. Uh, Martin Luther recounts a story of a dying woman who was doubting her salvation. He was visiting her, and she said, Dear Mr. Doctor, I think I'm lost and can't be saved because I can't believe. And he responds, Do you believe, dear woman, that it's true what you pray in your creed? And she clasped her hands together and says, Oh, that I believe, that is certainly true. Well, dear woman, then go forth in the name of God. You believe more and better than I. Do you believe, dear brother, Do you believe, dear sister? Then go forth in the name of God. You have knowledge. You have no need for anything more. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, and then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Do you not believe but want to believe? Trust Jesus. Is Jesus trustworthy to you? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so pray right now. Take his hand and let him guide you. Let's pray.